This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Carol, I really feel like this. What was gra- that? Well, I, I was just so excited about the story. Well, I well, you were going well, country. On I was me. going a little country, thinking about this story, uh, and really the fact. And part of it is I did see Ford versus Ferrari over the oh, weekend, you did see it. and so thinking about the company and then seeing this headline about this innovation, this sort of push toward the Mustang, electric Mustang, yeah, uh, coming out. Uh, it really caught my attention. So David Weston, he did catch up with a top Ford executive earlier. Here's what he had to say. We've been taking our time to make sure we when we thought the time was right. And we're leaning into our iconic nameplates. We're going to have a bad electric F-150, like we've, we've talked about recently. And of course, the Mustang extension of the brand here. We wanted to get the cost right. We wanted to wait for the customers were right next, and get the actually the charging network right. And that was David Weston uh, speaking with the president of Ford earlier. Let's get into this story. Keith Naughton joins us, auto reporter for Bloomberg, on the phone from L.A. And Rebecca Lindland, founder of RebeccaDrives.com. She's on the phone from Greenwich CT. So, Keith, I want to start with you. Tell me, should we be surprised by this or is this something that's been long planned? No, Ford a couple of years ago uh, sort of changed gears. They used to put out electric cars that nobody really bought that were what they call compliance cars, boring cars meant to just meet uh, you know, fuel economy regulations. They've now decided to electrify their icons. Uh, they're doing the Mustang followed by the F-150 pickup, which is the best-selling vehicle in America. The Mustang is not just the first time as an electric car, but also the first time in a sport utility vehicle configuration. So it's a real stretch for the brand, but they've given it tons of power, which you can get from electric motors. So the top-end model, the GT, is 450 horsepower. They say it goes 0 to 60 in the mid-three-second range, and that it it, uh, gives the Porsche 911 a run for its money. Kind of wild. Hey, Rebecca, so what is your take (laughs) on what Ford is up to and how this is going to fit into the grander scheme of electric vehicles? You know, I think this is a really good idea because, you know, they they have this iconic nameplate in the Mustang. And even though I totally respect and understand the purists out there that say, you know, this is an outrage <laughs> to put a tag, you know, the Mustang badge on a crossover, it reminds me to some extent on the Porsche people that, you know, were so outraged at the idea of the Cayenne back in 2002, you know, time frame, And yet it became one of the most successful vehicles that Porsche has uh, right behind the Macron, right. another crossover. You know, so I think that we have to understand that what Ford really is doing here is saying we respect the Mustang and and the place that it has in our history. And that's why we're 
expanding the nameplate to include this electric crossover for people that love the Mustang brand. And now we say, you know, you can buy a crossover in it as well. Well, and you know, it's interesting. Jason mentioned, we heard um, earlier from the president and CEO, Jim Hackett, talking to David Weston. He said that from day one, they're going to be profitable. Uh, They're going to make a profit on vehicle one. Um, uh, uh, Keith, does that sound right to you? Does that make sense? I'm not questioning the truth of his statement, (laughs) but I, but I do wonder, Keith, from, you know, you watch and you follow um, this industry. Does that make sense? Sound pretty logical. Well, well, Carol, Jim Hackett sort of walked us through why that will happen. Mm-hmm. One is they're pricing the car very competitively. It starts at forty three eight ninety five. When you apply the uh, the federal subsidies you get for buying an electric car, that takes it down to the mid thirty. So that'll stimulate demand. That puts it right on top of importantly the Tesla Model Three price wise, which is the best selling electric vehicle in America. The other aspect that boosts profitability, Carol, is this vehicle is built in Mexico, mm-hmm. where labor costs are very low. So the business case is very strong here. That Mexican-built Mach-E will be exported to Europe and the United States. Joe Hendricks, in that interview you just played a moment ago, uh, Ford's president, said they expect volume to be equal in, in both markets. So they expect pretty high volume. It's the only vehicle in this plant in Mexico. And they expect it to move because the price is right, too. All right. So go ahead, Rebecca. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I just want to add one more thing to that, too, is that the Maki is not as complex to make. And so there is a there's an opportunity for not as many workers to be on the vehicle as well. So all of those contribute to the idea that this could potentially be profitable fairly soon. All right. So, Rebecca, last question to you. As you look across the industry, what does this do to or for the other major players here? Does this help sort of give us a different sense of the broader landscape for electric? Well, any time that you can add a product like a crossover to an electric vehicle propulsion system, it gives people opportunities. It gives them options. I do still have concerns. Electric vehicles are only 1% to 2% of new car sales every month. And you know people still have a choice. They still have the internal combustion engine, which they know and love and they're familiar with. So I think that we're going to continue to see electric vehicles being pushed onto the market rather than a pull system of demand as long as there are internal combustion engines. But the more we can make them... Right family-friendly, user-friendly, the better we'll be. And just some clarity, because I think there was some confusion. It was Joe Henricks, as Keith pointed out, Ford Automotive president who caught up with David Weston. So that was the sound we heard a little bit earlier on. All right. Thank you both so much. Keith Naughton, auto reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from LA, and Rebecca Lindland, founder of RebeccaDrives.com. She joined us on the phone from Greenwich, Connecticut. Let's get to Boston now. Uh, we have international economics correspondent Michael McKee. He is there with the president of the Boston Federal Reserve Bank. That is Eric Rosengren. Going to send it up to Boston and Michael McKee. Thank you very much. We are here with the president of the Boston Federal Reserve Bank, Eric Rosengren, on Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide. Thank you very much for joining us today. You walked across the street to us. We give you uh, all the credit in the world since it's raining here in Boston. <laughs> on this beautiful day. It has been a very, shall we say, volatile year in 2019 for the Fed. What do you think you've learned about the economy over the past 12 months? 
while there's been a lot of volatility, we actually haven't ended up much different than what we expected last March. So if you look at where our forecast was for the end of the year, we thought that we'd get growth around 2%, a little bit above. We thought we'd have the inflation rate at 2% or a little bit below, and an unemployment rate in you know, around 3.6%. And that's pretty much where we've ended up. So despite the tariffs and the volatility that's occurred in some of the financial market movements, uh, we actually haven't ended up in a very bad place. So we're pretty close to our inflation target. Core PCE is just a little bit off of where we'd like it to be. It's at 1.7, we want it to be at 2%. The unemployment rate's still quite low. By historical standards, it's a really quite low. And GDP's growing roughly at what we would expect, which is around potential. So in terms of economic data, the outcome's been quite good. Well, Chairman Powell said last week the economy is in a good place. Would you agree with that characterization? I would. I would. I think we are in a good place. Now, the composition's been a little different than we expected. We expected business fixed investment and exports to be a little bit stronger. We didn't expect consumption to be quite so strong. So the imposition of the tariffs, the global slowdown resulted in both exports um, and business fixed investment being weaker than we would have forecast. Consumption, though, has picked up and been quite strong, and we expect it to continue. Would you think it would have been that way without the Fed's rate cuts? You dissented on all three of them. So we would have been a little softer in some areas. So residential investment looks like it's picking up. Uh, but one of the challenges, I think, is thinking about what the side effects are of very low interest rates. And there are two side effects that I am particularly continuing to worry about. One is how much room we have if we actually do get an actual slowdown as opposed to a concern about a slowdown. And in that case, we don't have that much room before short-term interest rates would hit zero. The second concern is that right now the stock market's been doing quite well. Other financial markets in some areas have been quite ebullient. And the question is, is this the stage of the cycle that you want to have a little more push to financial markets? And I would argue I'm not so certain that that's necessary. Well, you made a major point of both of those uh, in a speech last week in Oslo. Let me ask you about the first. Uh, you're basically saying the Fed's almost out of ammunition. I'm saying we don't have as much room as we had before. So uh, prior to the last three easings, the Fed funds rate was a pretty close to what I would expect to be as neutral over the longer run. We were at 2.4%. Since then, when we've reduced the federal funds rate by 75 basis points. Given the level that we were at, that was a substantial amount of easing. So both monetary policy and fiscal policy are accommodative right now. And so I'm not so sure we needed quite so much accommodation at this time. So I am a little bit worried that we have less room than we otherwise would have if we were to have a big negative shock. And I would say it's not just the short end of the market, so the long end of the market. It's been fluctuating between one and a half and two percent. That's a lot lower than what we were experiencing uh, prior to the last recession, which means even quantitative easing will have some limited effect given that that could quite easily get down to zero more quickly than we're expecting. So then what do we do? I think uh, we'll need fiscal policy at that stage, and fiscal policy in a very low interest rate environment. Fiscal policy becomes a much more important tool. And in the talk that I just gave, it also highlighted this is a time where we should be thinking about buffers, including uh, buffers for capital ratios for banks. And in general, fiscal policy, you'd like to have a little bit more of a buffer. State and local government, you'd want to have enough buffer that they can weather the storm and hopefully not have to cut back if we were to have a recession. Yeah, but you take a look at what's happening in Washington these days. There's no guarantee you're going to get any fiscal policy. So what would happen then? 
we'd have a longer recession than we would prefer. And can the Fed do anything in that case uh, except you know, cut rates to zero and do QE and then just cross your fingers and hope? Well, first of all, when we ease policy, it takes some time to have an effect. So lower interest rates have an impact over a number of quarters. So we would have some uh, flexibility to lower rates both at the short and long end of the market. That's the primary way that monetary policy works. I'm sure if it looked like we had a severe recession, we'd get creative about other things that we could do. Uh, I would hope that we don't have to do that, though. Now, you talked about the markets and the time in a cycle in which mistakes are made. Are you particularly concerned about that now? I'm not particularly concerned about that. Uh, obviously, in a period of a global slowdown, uh, it's an unfortunate time to be having some of the tariff disputes that we're having. It would be nice if that got settled more quickly. Um, but I'm not expecting necessarily to have a, a particularly large shock anytime soon. In fact, my forecast is actually for much of what we've seen over the last year, which is growth around potential, uh, pretty tight labor markets, and inflation around our inflation target. What does around our inflation target mean? I mean, we, we have struggled to get to the Fed's 2% target. Do you think that we can get there? And if so, how? So labor markets are tight. Wages have been going up. Uh, I'm a pretty patient person. I'd be willing to wait a little bit longer for uh, those tight labor markets to have an impact on prices. Uh, I don't think there's a big cost to being a little bit below 2%. I'd rather be higher. But I wouldn't want to distort financial markets in order to get that outcome. So I think we're looking at Japan and Europe, where they've actually pushed their rates very, very low in order to meet their inflation target. Uh, in fact, it's been negative in places like Germany and Japan. I'm not sure that's a constructive policy. And in fact, I think we should think about how much we want to distort financial markets uh, to hit inflation targets if we're pretty close to 2%. Uh, I would like it to be above 2% right now, but I wouldn't really distort financial markets to get that outcome. Well, there are a couple of proposals in the Fed's uh, monetary policy review. Uh, one is average inflation targeting, where you let it run above 2% if you can get there. The other would be to do a range instead of a point target. Would you favor either one of those? My own personal preference, and this is still a matter of discussion, but my personal preference would be a range. Uh, I think a one and a half to two and a half percent target, where during good times you aim for the higher part of that range, and knowing that when you have uh, economic downturns, you're likely to be a little below that range. That's how you end up with a symmetric 2% inflation target. So I actually am in favor of having something more like a range where we're aiming for 2% over time, but we're in a 1.5% to 2.5% uh, target range. I wasn't going to necessarily ask you about President Trump, but he did meet with Jay Powell today. Cordial conversation, they say. Uh, and they suggested that they did talk about negative interest rates, which is a bit of a big thing for the president. You say you don't like them. Uh, do you like them? Do you not like them in general or just for the United States? Uh, I actually don't like them particularly in general, but and particularly for the United States, uh, in part because our financial markets are a little bit different than European financial markets or Japanese financial markets. I don't think it's had the desired stimulus to get the long-term yield so negative in some parts of the world, and it starts to get distortive behavior that I don't think is helpful. In the United States, we have some very vibrant short-term money markets, and I think it would be pretty disruptive if we went to negative rates. So I think it's a policy uh, 
that some countries have tried. It's not clear. Those countries are still not uh, getting their inflation target. In fact, they're further away than we are after being negative for some time. So I don't think that so far, at least, we've seen much of a success. And I think particularly in Europe, they're beginning to reevaluate whether the negative interest rates have been as helpful as they thought. We're talking with Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren here on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. To follow up on that, uh, banks argue certainly against negative rates and say it distorts their financial incentives. In your speech, uh, you suggested that you are concerned about banks, excessive risk taking and levels of capital. Uh, we've been reassured many times by Fed officials that the banking system is in much better shape than 2008. So how would you describe it? So one of the points of my talk is in an environment where the federal funds rate is 4% and the long-term treasury rates above that, you have a lot of room before you hit zero in an economic downturn. Should you have the exact same capital buffer in a world where your federal funds rate is closer to 1.6 and so is your long-term 10-year treasury rate? So we do care about how much room we have and monetary policy has been the primary way that we've gotten out of recessions in the post-war period. So if we're in an environment where interest rates are much lower and monetary policy may not be able to provide as much stimulus, that's an environment where other buffers have to be larger, including capital buffers. So while I do think that we have substantially increased our capital buffers, if you really think we're in a low interest rate environment, I think if you thought we were in the right place five years ago, we probably aren't in the right place now that we think that interest rates will be a lot lower. Should we have a counter-cyclical capital buffer? I definitely think it would be appropriate to have a counter-cyclical capital buffer. The entire idea is that you'll have a bigger buffer <clears throat> right now when financial markets are doing quite well. And in the economic downturn, you'd reduce the capital ratio so that you didn't have to shrink bank assets. So banks are an incredibly important part of how monetary policy is transmitted. If you're in an environment where banks are trying to shrink, it's very hard to have the same amount of stimulus as an environment where banks aren't constrained. So I think the counter-cyclical capital buffer is one of the ways to avoid that problem. Can't let you go without asking a question for our short-end friends, and that is uh, Jay Powell last week said he thinks the Fed has the repo problem under control. Do you agree? I think in general it's uh, under control. It certainly will be under control after we continue to do all the Treasury bill purchases that we've announced. So uh, I think between now and spring we'll be expanding our balance sheet and that should be more than sufficient to solve, I think, a lot of the difficulties that were experienced in September. Do you have a number for how big you think um, the excess reserve should be? I think by the time that we get to spring, we'll probably have enough excess reserves that it'll become much less of an issue. All right. Eric Rosengrid, thank you very much. President of the Boston Federal Reserve, we're going to send it back to you in New York. Michael McKee, thank you so much. Joining us from Boston with Eric Rosengren, of course, the president of the Boston Fed. And, you know, interesting to hear him say bank capital buffers ought to be larger due to low rates and also, no big surprise, doesn't like negative rates and said they would be pretty disruptive here in the U.S. despite and maybe because of everything we've seen all over the world. Very topical because we see we are living in a negative rate world increasingly. And I think the capital... 
uh, buffers. That's an interesting one because I do think the banks have been pushing, right, to reduce them coming off of the financial crisis. They were put in place um, as safety measures. Uh, but uh, that is interesting to see him kind of weigh in on that. Anyway, a little bit of Fed talk and a little bit of uh, economic and monetary policy talk for you on this Monday. I'm Carol Masser along with Jason Kelly, and you are listening to Bloomberg Radio. So we talk often about the importance of building pipelines as a necessary way to create more diversity, more women in both the public and private sectors. Here with what we've learned since the 2018 midterms, tw- midterms, excuse me, and how she's working to get more women in the pipeline. Erin Luce Cutraro, she's back with us, founder and CEO of She Should Run. And she's, of course, typically based in Washington, D.C. She's back here in the Bloomberg headquarters, specifically in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So nice to have you back. Thank you, Carol. Um, tell us about where we are when it comes to the prospect of more women making their way into uh, elected office. Sure. So, uh, you know, I'll start by saying that a lot of folks are particularly interested in was was 2018 a, a moment in time? Was it a surge that would pass? And what we're seeing in the numbers so far is we're sustaining the momentum, continuing to grow the pipeline. Um, and I think there's some really interesting stories to tell that look quite different than 2018 even. And so, Aaron, as you look across the success stories, what what do you take away that that might be a through line? I, obviously, every race is a little bit different, but where have you seen things where you said, okay, we should do that again? You know, I, I think what's most interesting is that a lot of the research around women running um, points to the need to recruit women, to encourage women to run for office. This is all still true. It's a uh, mostly a man's game with his, you know, record or majority men in office. It's not surprising to see men are more likely to be recruited. But what we're seeing that's different is that women are now increasingly saying, okay, I'm going to run. I'm going to run just like I am. And um, mm. and the voters are hungry, I think, um, for that variety. And, and while we're not there yet, I wouldn't say we're totally normalized in seeing women in positions of political power. Mm-hmm. It's becoming more and more normal to see women, to tell their stories. And I think as we continue to see that, we will continue to see more women step forward. Because you said earlier, different stories to tell than 2018. Is yeah. that what's different? Yeah. You know, what's, what? two things that I want to point out. One is, um, you know, we, we we absolutely see a, a record number of women on the ballot already. Um, what's super interesting to me is it's a Republican story. So um, last year at this time, uh, there was a, a story of a record number of women on the ballot, but it was primarily Democratic women. Right. This year, we actually have registered to run um, for federal office double the number of Republican female candidates than we did last year at the same time. Wow. So, you know, th- we saw this in the in the outcome of the election in 2018. There was little to no gain. In some places, Republican women actually went backwards in their percentage of um, of political power, and so that absolutely needed to change. What changed? You know, look, I think there's there's a really high number of incumbent Republican men who have announced they're not running for right. re-election, okay. which opens up, I mean, tremendous opportunity. It's really difficult to beat an incumbent. On the Democratic side, what we're seeing is a record number of um, challengers to incumbents. Um, which some yeah. could point to examples like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm-hmm. and say, mm-hmm. not surprising. Yeah. Right. Well, because that was one where it seemed like the longest of long shots and then it happened. That's I mean, right. this was one of the most senior members of the House, uh, Joe Crowley, that she, of course, defeated. 
How does it being a presidential year change things? Obviously, you get bigger voter turnout, typically. Uh, does that change your calculus at all, who you go after, who you recruit? Yeah, I mean, it, it does in that, I mean, look, women since I think 64 have been the majority of voters mm -hmm. in elections, and that will, re I'm sure, remain true this uh, in, in the 2020 elections. Do women tend to vote for other women? Do uh, we have any research on that yet? No, I don't. You know, I, yeah, I can't point to it. Because we talk about in the business community, even like female venture capitalists don't always, aren't very supportive of other women entrepreneurs. So I just wondered if there's anything no, and, that and, plays out politically. Absolutely. And I'd, I'd love to say that, you know, I'm not privy to research that you look at and say, yeah. ooh, God, women are really tough on other women. Yeah. You right. know, I mean, there's this issue that we face around women running. Probably number one issue is around likability. Women have to be likable. Men don't have to be likable. So what does that mean for women who, are running um, women hold them to that high of a standard too around likability and qualifications so right. we have a long way to go there well and I do wonder about likability what does it mean for a woman because I think um, I'm gonna say I think it's more complicated because I think some people like women who are very successful and driven and, and career driven and strong and some want them to be like the person you know your next-door neighbor who's watching kids all of it valuable. I'm yeah. not making any judgment call, but I do wonder what's likable yeah. in an environment like today, or does it come down to policies and what they stand for? It really does feel like something you can't win. You know, if you yeah. if you're if you're too assertive, then that's that's no good. If you're you know too soft, um, that's no good. Mm -hmm. And I think until we get to a place where we have critical mass of women serving in elected office and those examples to point to, we're going to continue to struggle with this. So you mentioned uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who obviously has become arguably one of the most prominent politicians mm -hmm. in America. There is this whole notion, we've talked about it a lot on this show, the whole notion of, you know, if you can see it, you can be it, that, that idea. Nancy Pelosi sort of coming back mm -hmm. to being one of the most senior politicians in the U.S. Has that changed the calculus at all? And this crop of new women legislators what is the ultimate impact there? Yeah, look, it's the it's the most diverse Congress that we've ever seen, and it absolutely changes who who's thinking about running, who who looks forward and says, um, you know, maybe, maybe I can see myself in that role. We at She Should Run focus primarily on women who are running at the local level, and mm -hmm. that's where we see a huge effect because, you know, when you, when you sort of only see one type of person serving in elected office, you look at that and you say, no way, that's not me no chance I'm not qualified you go through all of the issues but as we continue to diversify that that representation I think you know it's anybody it's anybody's game then well, and I do wonder about, you know, you put, there was a stat in some of the research that you sent over that uh, the World Economic Forum recently projected that we are a staggering at 208 years away from gender equality in the U.S. Um, that just hurts me so, so much. Um, in terms of what you're seeing politically, do you feel like, though, and the momentum, as you said, feels like it's really, really strong. Um, could we see parity a lot closer in terms of Congress? Yes. My and, hope is that there's a snowball effect here. Yeah. Absolutely. If we continue at the rate that we're at, it's going to take a really long time. Time. This will not happen in our lifetime, but you know that we we actually just launched a program called Roll Call that gets mm -hmm. right at this, which is um, what we saw of individuals coming to us is you know across the board people who are catalysts within their business, within um, you know within their uh, education setting, within their communities that said we want to do something to be helpful, but um, but but. 
I'm not the candidate. So right. what can I do? Right. And so what we have done is build the platform to say, look, we're if we want to solve this in less than, you know, what the World Economic Forum is telling us, then we all have to step up and do something. And those little some things will add up to something really big. Right. Makes a difference. Yeah. Um, Aaron, so good to see you. Yes. Make sure you come check back with us during the election year. Aaron, Aaron Luz Cutraro, she's founder and CEO of She Should Run, based in Washington, D.C., uh, but happy to have her back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Monday. You don't want me anymore. <laughs> so this was our most read story this morning when I got up. Number one uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's still on our most read list. It's about the IPO of Saudi oil giant Aramco, how it's not living up to expectations. Tina Davis is managing editor of Energy and Commodities at Bloomberg News. She's been all over Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg TV today. She's back here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Um, I do feel like, you know, we couldn't wait. We're so eager. The size of this, the scope, all this good stuff. Um, it's still big, but it's not as big as we all thought, right? And it's much more local now. Yeah, I mean, you sort of think of this as as the endless Charlie Brown with Lucy and the football, <laughs> because it felt it felt like when this was announced several years ago. Tina, it, that it, could apply to so many things yes. this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, then the football somehow gotten smaller and more local, as yeah. you pointed out. Yeah. So the, the metaphor only slightly works. Um, but look, this was initially announced as a $2 trillion uh, valuation, yeah. looking at potentially IPOing three to five percent of the company. So we're talking about a hundred billion dollars would have been the largest share sale, share sale ever. Um, and but, global. And global. So I don't know if you remember, but at one point the president actually tweeted, "We'd love to have this thing, you know, IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. Please bring your business here." So what's been happening is a series of both delays and dramatic. Uh, contraction in the ambition of this thing. And look, this is still, if it prices at the high end, it's still going to be the largest IPO in history. It's still going to pass Alibaba from 2014. Um, It's still the most profitable company to be publicly traded if Mm. this goes forward. Uh, so there's also there's still a lot of it's great sizes work. and scopes there. It's not we so work, don't, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it's not. It's definitely not we work. <laughs> right. Well, Saudi Aramco will still exist in a few years. That's I'm right. Pretty confident that. Well, and also, I mean, there will be some proceeds which will then go into the hands of big private equity managers and hedge fund managers and money managers. And yet, the size and scope, as you say, some of it hasn't changed, but the changes that have happened really illustrate maybe how the world is viewing Saudi Arabia differently and vice versa, don't you think? Well, I think it's in part uh, a view of Saudi Arabia. And look, this is a this is a company that you're making a bet essentially on the politics of right. Saudi Arabia, right? It's not purely an oil company. It does a lot of other things for that nation. So you're making a bet sort of on the geopolitics of it. You're also making a bet on the long-term prospects of oil. Yeah. Uh, again, equity is never necessarily a huge long-term investment. You can get in and out of it quickly. But part of the reason why the Saudis wanted to do this was to diversify their economy a little bit. Now what they're having to do is essentially diversify their economy with their own economy's money right. in the near term. But do we, you know, it's just wild. So, you you know, you put in the story... Saudi Arabia talks about you know everything it's been doing to make sure that this IPO is a success. It cut the tax rate for Aramco three times. It promised the world's largest dividend, offered bonus shares for retail investors who keep hold of the stock. But it is not going to be marketed in the U.S., not in Canada, not Japan, uh, no roadshow events in London and other European cities. I mean, that's a big pullback. 
Yeah, and what they're doing, I think, is really trying to control this IPO. And I think once you take it to foreign markets, you lose a lot of that. So as you mentioned, they're offering extra shares. If you hold on to your stake as a retail investor in Saudi Arabia, if you hold on to your stake for six months, you get a little bit extra for doing that. They are loosening up the bank restrictions. So if you want to borrow money as a Saudi Arabian to buy into this IPO, you have uh, a brand new way of doing that, essentially, because the central bank is loosening up those uh, lending requirements. So they are going above and beyond to try to make sure this thing doesn't become, you know, a uh, an IPO where it drops 30% on the right. first day or there's right. no support for it. They're doing everything they can to make sure this is a success. I want to go back to something you said, which I think is so critical to this, which is this notion of it's a bet, you know, short-term, mid-term, long-term on oil. Remind us sort of where we are in that market, because that's one of the big reasons we care about it. Yes, we care about it for the fees. Mm-hmm. Yes, we care about it for the scope globally, but also for what it tells us about demand and supply for oil, ultimately. Right. And and even if you listen to executives at Aramco, they will t- tell you when you ask them about the future, what they're looking at is future demand from plastics uh-huh. and from other things for oil. So they won't necessarily tell you there is peak oil demand coming, or they'll say it's not within any sort of near-term horizon. Other people, of course, have different opinions about when exactly the demand will reach its tipping point and start to decline, and we'll see alternatives, certainly in the, in the transportation sector, for this kind of fuel. So yes, I mean, it, it is very interesting because you also have a lot of institutional investors who are maybe not looking to invest in fossil fuels anymore. Right. We've seen certainly Norway's sovereign fund go that way. Is that, Other what, folks. is that some of what's going on that we're just realizing? Everybody's, you know, here we are talking about Ford and the Mustang and SUV, EV, you know, all these alternatives. I mean, is some of what's going on is just people not quite so sure about our oil future? I think there is increasing pressure to sort of say that you, the models that have existed in the past about where this, uh, you know, certainly to the demand side yeah. of this market is going, need to be rethought. And I think you, you see that again. You see that with the sort of de- decisions that are being made. There are the ESG concerns that just simply say, I don't want any of my money headed in that direction. But look, I think if you're talking about sovereign wealth funds and other types of cornerstone investors, you can still get the major consumers to buy into this, I think. You can still, you know, we've reported plenty of times that they are talking to the Chinese and the Indians about taking a substantial stake. That might still happen at some point. And I think, again, if you're able to prove out this concept mm-hmm. at the local level, you may it easier to do internationally eventually. Great stuff. Love talking with you. Thank you so much. Tina Davis, she's our managing editor of Energy and Commodities here at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. The first trading day of the week. Trading session almost over. Just about 12 minutes to go. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us, Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management, Margie Patel. $503 billion in assets under management. Uh, Joining us once again on the phone from Boston. Nice to have you back here uh, on Bloomberg Radio. Margie, I don't know. How do you see this environment? 
Well, I think the market is just going to stubbornly move on ahead over the balance of the year uh, because the numbers are good. We had another quarter that was pretty good. The economy is growing slowly but sustainable, and there's too much money on the sidelines waiting for a big correction. That's going to keep a floor under the market. And so if you're thinking about putting money to work between now and the end of the year, what do you do with it? Well, I think stocks are really the best place to be. I think, obviously, over the rest of the year, the gains will be pretty modest. But uh, interest rates are so low that it's a pretty low hurdle for stocks to equal or do better. What kind of stocks? Where do you want to be at this market? I mean, you look at some of some of the run-ups that we've seen in a lot of names. Um, hard to make a value case. So I'm just curious, where would you put, where would you commit new money that you think will provide decent returns? I hate to be short-term oriented, but let's talk about the next year or so. Well, I'm looking for companies that have a sustainable growth path ahead of them. And also, ideally, that are reasonably priced. There are a lot of great stocks that have already gone up 40% this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but to look for companies that, even with a slow economy, one and a half, two 2%, can churn out earnings that will be high enough to maintain their price-earnings ratio and return more than fixed income. So, like, or industries? Can you talk sectors or anything? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think technology will continue to be a winner. I think certain parts of healthcare, we've liked uh, tools and devices and services. That's been a great area. I think it will continue to be a good area because they don't have a lot of the pricing problems that other parts of the healthcare markets have. They don't have the gener- generic drug problems. And uh, we think utilities will continue to churn out mid-single-digit growth plus dividends, which will be, I think, competitive with most equities over the next year, and uh, even some industrials, which I think are benefiting from longer-term trends in capitalizations, companies that have a lot of technology in their products. And so, Margie, when you think about the Fed right now, we've been sort of having this debate, I feel like, for for a while as to, or certainly it's been top of mind. We heard from Eric Rosencren here on Bloomberg uh, today up in your neck of the woods. Michael McKee was there in our bureau talking to him. He obviously has been a dissenter over the past uh, three meetings in terms of those uh, rate cuts. We have our own Bloomberg economics team saying Fed's going to pause. For now, what do you make of where the Fed is and what they might do in the short term? I think the Fed learned a very good lesson uh, with their inappropriate 25 basis point cut in December, which the market absolutely despised and cratered. And when they shifted gears to become more sensitive to market and financial conditions, the market has done much better. And I think that visibility will help business continue to invest. So I think the Fed is on a totally new operating method, which is to be passive, to be on the sidelines, not interfere, take its cues from the market. I think that's very positive. Big change from how they've operated. So it's interesting. I do wonder if something dramatically has changed within our market environment in terms of not just talking about financial markets, but economic environments as well and markets in terms of low rates, low interest rates. We can't seem to get much inflation going. We're also kind of subpar growth. Is this just the world that we are going to live in? Uh, I'm just curious if there's anything that comes across your desk that confirms that or refutes that. No, that's my belief. I think that we're in a somewhat deflationary world of low growth. I don't think we'll get the inflation engine going again in our lifetime. That says low interest rates. And so that says the best returns should be in the equity market. So I'm not looking for any big rebound or any big leverage that will propel the market to grow or the equity market, stock market to grow um, with a 
economy of 5%. I think that's just not going to happen. So modest growth, modest returns, but low inflation. So that'll be pretty good. So what worries you the most about this market as we head toward the end of 2019, Margie? Uh, I would say the U.S. is in great shape. I'm not worried at all about the U.S. It would just be uh, continued erosion and growth in other countries around the world. Uh, China is a great example, mm-hmm. and also some of the emerging markets that just may sag under the weight of uh, very, very high debt levels and uh, take those, con- those countries into recession, and that could pull us down. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, as always, Margie Patel, Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager for Wells Fargo Asset Management. They're looking after about half a trillion dollars there. She joined us on the phone from Boston. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.